I think it's a true statement that the orphan needs the church, and yet how much has our church benefited from the orphan too? Our church family is much, much different than it would be apart from the miracle that God has intervened and allowed us to become a much different church through the, the grace of adoption adoption into God's family, then allowing our church to be faithful into adoption and, and fostering of others. And so it's, it's a, a great joy to be able to serve at a church that so faithfully loves children. And, and, and what, a, what a joy it is to think about looking at those slides and just what a, and, the, and that's not even everyone, right? We know that there, we were watching this this week and said, oh, there's some families missing, but uh, if you were one of those families missing, I apologize. Um, so uh, please turn your Bibles to First uh, Samuel chapter 1. I'm not going to, as we begin our time, I'm not going to begin by, by reading that. And if, if you'd like, uh, you could also you could put your finger there in First Samuel 1 and turn to Psalm 127. That's the passage I'm going to read as we begin our time. I'm going to be walking through First Samuel chapter 1 together as we, as we enjoy our time of worship this morning. And so if you make your way to Psalm 127, uh, as, you, as you find it, please stand with me as we read Psalm 127 together. And in Psalm 127, we see God's sovereignty and we see God's provision of children. And I'm going to begin here in Psalm 127, verse 1. The psalmist says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep to his, or he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. You may be seated and may God be glorified and our hearts encouraged. There is word this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, this is such a joyous time, this Sunday, to be able to talk about life, your provision of life, granting life to us, the opportunity to care for the life that you've given to others. and I pray that you'd soften our hearts today. I pray that you'd encourage our hearts. I pray that you would give our hearts the resolve to do the things you've called us to do. I pray for us to continue to worship you in spirit and in truth, and I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned earlier that there's kind of three things that our church tries to accomplish on a Sanctity of Life Sunday. The first thing is to boldly and clearly and without apology speak out against the evil that is abortion. Abortion is an atrocity, an evil that besets not just our own nation, but it's a worldwide atrocity. Maybe some of you read a opinion editorial that was put out by the Canadian Medical Association this past week or so. And in this editorial, the Canadian Medical Association was recommending that women not be told the gender of their baby until at least 30 weeks along in the pregnancy because of gender-related abortion. In other words, children who are girls are being aborted at a much higher ratio percentage than children who are boys. And so the Canadian Medical Association issued a, a recommendation that people not be told the gender of their child to prevent gender-based abortion. The Toronto Star, which is, is a, a paper that has run many so-called pro-choice editorials on its pages, had a headline in one of its edi- over one of its editorials that could have been pulled from a, a pro-life pamphlet. It said, in great irony, Every life is precious. And it argued that people not perform abortions because of the the gender of the child. Now, I suppose they go on to argue that 
if you don't know the gender of your child, it's okay to have an abortion, or if every life is precious unless it's a Down syndrome baby, but every life is precious, and the church this morning boldly speaks out against the evil that is abortion, boldly proclaiming that indeed every life is precious. The second thing that we try to do on a Sanctity of Life Sunday is highlight and speak out in favor of the gospel-centered solution of orphan care ministry and adoption. We believe that we've been adopted into the family of God as believers, and so we highlight this orphan care ministry on Sanctity of Life Sunday, proclaiming the hope that we have through Jesus Christ and encouraging others to exhibit that hope as they care for the fatherless. And that's something we do boldly, without apology, on a Sanctity of Life Sunday. A third thing that we try to accomplish on a Sanctity of Life Sunday is encourage people to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost culture and talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be that message that truly transforms and changes our culture. We believe that abortion is not the cause of all evil in society. Rather, we believe that we live in a culture that's rejected the gospel, and in a culture that's rejected the gospel, rejected God's design for the family, a a culture that's rejected God's design for life, abortion and other similar atrocities are the inevitable result. What we're going to do this morning is look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. And as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to encounter a woman named Hannah. We're going to see the heartache that Hannah goes through, the grief that she experiences. And as we look at Hannah's grief and her heartache and the tragedy that she goes through, what we're going to learn are some valuable things about the nature of life, about the sanctity of life, about God's role in bestowing life, and what our response to the life that God provides should be. Now, before we begin looking at at Hannah's heartache that exists here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, I I just want to say that my heart has ached for some of you this week as I've I've thought about the message this morning. I know that in this room are represented women who have gone through heartaches that are very similar to Hannah's here. Some of you have experienced the the pain of of infertility, have struggled with that heartache. Some of you have had miscarriages. Some of you have had an abortion and are are dealing with with the pain and the sorrow that's accompanied some of those things. Uh, Some of you uh, don't have a family and and, and you're single and and have desired to experience the the blessing of family. And so there's a little bit of a heartache for you this morning as you think about the sanctity of life. And, and, and what I want to say to you this morning is, is my heart has ached for you. And, and as we think about heartache and, and sorrow, I, I hope you remember the words of, of the writer of Ecclesiastes when he says, it's better to go sometimes to a house of mourning than a house of joy. In other words, sometimes when you go into a place of sorrow, of, of sadness, of heartache, there are sometimes some things that you can learn in that context that you can't learn in a place where there's celebration and rejoicing and happiness. There are things you can learn about God and his character and his faithfulness and the nature of life in a house of sorrow and a place of mourning that you cannot learn in a house of mirth and joy and celebration. And this morning we're going to look at Hannah and we're going to find her at her darkest point in her life. And as we look at Hannah at the darkest moment in her life, we're going to see how she responds, and we're going to see some things about God, about his sovereignty over life, about the bestowal of life, and about the the, the sanctity of life. And I hope that as we learn from Hannah in her sorrow, it shapes the way that our church views the sanctity of human life. I hope this morning that as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, It shapes our church's understanding of life. What I want to do is I want to walk through the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And then after we've walked through the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, what I want us to do is draw some principles from the story that have to do with the sanctity of life as we think about the sanctity of human life on Sanctity of Life 
Sunday, a day that represents the 39th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, a decision that allows the termination of pregnancy, the ending of human life. Let's begin by looking at verses 1 and 2. Samuel tells us, who we believe was the writer of First and Second Samuel, we read verses 1 and 2, there was a certain man of Ramatham, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite, and he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, as we begin looking at verses 1 and 2, we see that, that Hannah is a person who lives in a fallen world. 1 Samuel, the first two verses occur at the time in Israel's history when there were judges. If you remember the book of Judges, Judges was one of the, the darkest books in all of Scripture. As you go through the book of Judges, there's this cycle of, of sin, and, and people in the nation of Israel engage in, in terrible sin, and then there's a time in which God responds to their sin by, by putting them into bondage, and then after they're put into the bondage, the people often respond with repentance, and then God will send salvation. There's this, this cyclical period of, of sin, then being placed into servitude, and then God providing salvation. The sin in the nation of Israel throughout the book of Judges gets worse and worse and worse, and then you come to some chapters at the end of the book of Judges that are just horrendous in the things that happen there. And the last words of the book of Judges end with this very bleak statement. It says, in those days there was no king in the, the nation of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. People are engaged in immoral lifestyles. They've rejected God's plan for the people of Israel, and there's, there's no king. Everyone is doing what is right in his or her own eyes. That's the, the, the culture in which Hannah lives. And as we look at verses 1 and 2, we also see another example of the fallen world in which Hannah lives. She is married to a person who has two wives. Now, God's design for marriage had always been one man and one woman. And in Scripture, we sometimes see people violating this design for marriage. Now, God, just as he made allowances for divorce in a fallen world, he made allowances for people who pursued a pattern for marriage that was not his design for it. But nowhere in Scripture is polygamy commended. And every time we see it in, every time we encounter it in Scripture, we see the negative effects of pursuing a marriage design that's not God's. Now, Hannah, as we find her in verses 1 and 2, is a woman who lives in a fallen culture. She's in a culture that's rejected God and his plans, and she's even in a marriage relationship in which her husband has made accommodations to his culture that illustrate that she lives in a fallen world. And as we encounter the next verses in 1 Samuel, we see her heartache. Now, there's some good things in her life. In verse 3 it says, this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And so there are some good things that are going on in Hannah's life. First of all, Elkanah, even though he has made accommodations to his culture, it seems like he's a man, first of all, that has a love for the Lord. Samuel tells us here that he's a, a person who worships the Lord of hosts. And that phrase, Lord of hosts, is that's the first time it's used in Scripture here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And it describes God as, as a God of, of, who's sovereign over all the created realm. And, and Elkanah, on a regular basis, is engaged in worship of God. And so he's a person that, even though he's made accommodations in his culture, seems to still have a genuine love for Yahweh. In fact, not only does he have a love for Yahweh, he also has a desire to bring his family to worship God. He brings his family to, to Shiloh where the tabernacle is, and they as a family engage in worship of God. As they engage in worship, we also see that Elkanah seems to be a good man and that he has a genuine love and concern for his wife, Hannah. And so even though Hannah is living in some difficult circumstances, a different a difficult culture, a difficult home life, there are still some positive things that God has placed in her life. A husband who loves the Lord, 
who wants to lead his family, fallen as it may be, in worship of the Lord, and a family, a husband who genuinely loves her. But what do we see about her heartache and her desperation? Well, the writer tells us, Hannah has no children. The end of verse 5 is very clear about the reason for this. God has sovereignly prevented her from being able to have children. It says here, the, the Lord had closed her womb. And so her heartache begins with this reality that she's unable to have children, and then things get worse. She has this rival, Penina, who provokes her, who irritates her. And presumably during most of the year, they would have been in separate tents and maybe living somewhat separate lives, but as they engage in worship of Yahweh once a year, as they go to this feast, probably the Feast of the Tabernacles at Shiloh, and are there as a family participating in the feast together, her rival provokes her, and we kind of imagine some of the things that, that uh, Peninnah says to Hannah. She, she looks at Hannah and she goes, oh, that's nice, you got a double portion. I hope you're hungry. My children will be happy to eat some of that for you if it's too much. We have lots of kids here to eat. And she continues to kind of say these, these just very subtle, sometimes very overt, antagonistic things to Hannah in order to provoke her and irritate her. And it's this constant, it's this constant irritant that she experiences. We see insight into perhaps one particular year. Verse 7 says this goes on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, uh, Peninnah used to provoke Hannah. And one time, Hannah wept and, and would not eat. Hannah comes to this moment in life where her situation seems so desperate and so pathetic that she's unable to engage in worship, unable to enjoy the feast. And maybe some of you have been where Hannah has been. You know, Hannah exists in this culture where, where the norm is that a, a person would marry and they would have children, and these children are supposed to be a sign of, of God's blessing. And Hannah's life is on a different trajectory than the lives of the people around her. And, and maybe some of you have experienced this. You know, your, your peers get married at a certain age, and, and God hasn't provided you a spouse. And you kind of look around and say, boy, this is a little bit unsettling. I, I was hoping that I'd have this blessing of family, and I, and I don't right now. Or, or maybe God is, you're in a place in life where your friends around you are, are having children, and, and God hasn't allowed that to be the case for you. And, and maybe God's placed that desire in your heart. Maybe he hasn't. But whatever case, your life is on a different trajectory than the lives of the people around you. And, and it, it's a little bit disorienting. And you're like, what's going on here, God? That's kind of the moment that Hannah's at. In fact, let me read a couple verses to you that I think describes some of the struggles that Hannah must have been having as, as she thinks about this reality that the children are from God and this is a desire that she has. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Moses says that God will love you. God will love you. He'll bless you. He will multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, <clears throat> in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you. In fact, even among your livestock. Deuteronomy 28 verse 1 says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. You'll be blessed. Be fruitful. Psalm 113 verse 9 says, He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Psalm 127 verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Psalm 128 verse 3, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Now, Hannah may not have been able to read those psalms, but she would have known the the Levitical law, and she would have known what Deuteronomy says, and she would have known that the children are the sign of blessing from God. And so now at this moment in time, 
Hannah goes to worship the, the Lord of hosts, the one who's sovereign over all creation, and she understands children are a blessing. She understands, I don't have children, and then she has this rival that God has placed sovereign in her, sovereignly in her life that is continuing to vex her and irritate her and, and taunt her. And, and now Hannah is supposed to engage in worship of God, a God who's denied her her heart's desire. She has this desire to honor God and, and have children and, and fulfill God's purpose for her life. She believes God's purpose for her life. God's denied that to her. And now she's supposed to go to Shiloh and worship. She says, I, I can't eat. I'm not hungry. And she's, she's crying uncontrollably. She's weeping. And Elkanah, her husband, says this to her. Verse 8. He said, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? And, and now, to this point, maybe he was doing okay. You know, Perhaps as a husband, these are some things he really did need to say to her, and perhaps her heart was kind of teetering there on the edge of bitterness, that, that expression, why is your heart sad? I mean, why is your heart bad? Why is, why is there, there evil, kind of this, this, this bitterness in your heart? And, and so perhaps here he's doing okay. And then he says this, am I not better to you than ten sons? To which the answer is no. You know, husbands, you know, there's, there's a time to say something and then there's a the time when you need to say nothing. Even if you think you have the most beautiful illustration or gem of wisdom in the world, you need to be quiet. Elkanah, trying to help, says something here that's not very helpful at all, is it? Many of you have experienced those kind of comments before. People kind of making these statements as they see your grief, maybe even grief over not having children, like, well, you know, children are a lot of work. God's blessed you by not giving you so much work. Or, you know, you know, marriage is hard. It's a good thing you're single right now because marriage is really difficult. Not a helpful statement. Elkanah's statement here is not necessarily helpful to Hannah. How is she going to respond to this this heartache that she is undergoing. At this moment when she's, she's called to worship the Lord of hosts, the Lord who's sovereign over created life, and she's, she's called to enjoy and worship and fellowship, how is she going to respond to this, this temptation towards bitterness? Well, here's how Hannah responds. It says, after they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. She gets up. Eli the priest was sitting at the seat by, by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and she prayed. She prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Hannah, in her heartache, in her distress, in this, this emotional conflict, takes this pain, this unease, this, this tension between this desire to have children and, and the fact that God has denied her these children, and she goes to the Lord and she gives him that bitterness, that heartache, and she prays to the Lord and she's, she's weeping. It says she vowed a vow. And said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and, and not forget your servant, but will give to me, to your servant, a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. She's here, in a, in a sense, making a commitment to raise him as a Nazarite, to fulfill the Nazarite vow for him. And so she continues to, to pray before the Lord, verse 12, and, and Eli sees her as she's, she's praying this prayer before the Lord, Eli, sees her praying this prayer, and, and Eli, and we're, we're not going to be able to get into much of his life story this morning, but Eli is a terrible judge of character. He doesn't understand his own sons and how terrible their character is, and here, as he looks at Hannah, doesn't understand her character either. He sees a woman deep in distress and assumes that she's a drunkard. Verse 14 Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Verse 17, Eli answers her, go in peace. Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And she went on her way and ate and her face 
was no longer sad. And so what Eli is blessing her with is, is that God is going to fulfill this, this request that you've made to him. And Hannah, before receiving assurance that that's going to be the case, responds in worship of Yahweh, in worship of God. We go on to read that the Lord remembers Hannah. Verse 20 tells, In due time Hannah conceived and and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. Now, here's where the story gets a little bit stressful for me, especially when I was a kid. I was really glad when Hannah got a boy, you know, good deal for Hannah, glad that she's got a good son. And then you're like, wait a minute, is she really going to give that kid away? Think about it. This is the kid that she's yearned for, this this desire that she's had. This was a a desire that she had that, that affected her so deeply that there was weeping and groaning and distress. And so the tension is, was her distress turned in a, in a godly focus, in a godly direction, or, or was her child an idol that she was worshiping instead of God? What do we see? Well, the, the tension kind of continues a little bit. Elkanah goes up like he goes up every year. In verse 22, Hannah doesn't go up. And she says, well, as soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him. That would have been about age two or three, probably three so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And Elkanah, understanding that the struggle that she's going through, says, look, do what seems best to you, but wait until you've weaned him, but may the Lord establish his word. In other words, may your vow to the Lord be fulfilled, and what God said would happen, happen. Then you know the story, if you've read this before, she goes She fulfills her word to the Lord. She offers sacrifices to the Lord. They slaughter the bull, verse 25, and she says to Eli, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord, and as long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. Then here's the last line. And he worshiped the Lord there. You see the progression? Hannah's heartache, her distress, her grief, her sorrow is turned in a heavenly direction. And as a result, there's worship. Hannah's heartache leads to worship. There are so, so many principles that we could, we could draw out of 1 Samuel chapter 1. This morning, though, our focus is on the sanctity of life. And so I want to instead, just, I want to draw three principles from this story that relate to the sanctity of life. This is the first principle. Uh, children are given by God. Children are given by God. You know, there's a lot of stories that go around about how children come into being. You know, there's a story of the, the stork dropping off kids in diaper bags or something like that. And there's, uh, I don't know if you remember in the 80s, there were these things called uh, cabbage patch kids. Like they grew in a garden or something. Um, I, you know, I was into G.I. Joes and stuff, so that didn't really phase me. But I always thought it was a little strange to, to think of children underneath the ground and then kind of sprouting up. I did enjoy the uh, parody Garbage Pail Kids, but uh, those didn't pick up as well, I think, among the girls. But uh, this, uh, this chapter, chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, tells us very clearly, look, look, children come from God. The ultimate author of life is, is God. The one who gives life is God. Children are given by God. Now, some people say, well, does that mean that we have to, that it's wrong to have medical um, treatments or things to to help promote life? And the answer would be be no. That's not what this means. It also clearly, we see in Scripture, means that a lack of children is, is not a curse from God. Over and over again in Scripture, 
we see examples of women who lived very godly lives and, and yet had, had no children. You look at Sarah, Elizabeth, you look at Hannah here, and it's very clear there was no correlation between sin and the lack of children. In fact, you think of, I think even of Anna, and, and we don't know for sure, but you know, her husband dies at a very, when she's very young, and so presumably she didn't have children in, in her entire life. She didn't have children, yet she was a very righteous woman. Uh, children are, are given by God. They're, they're given by God to couples. They're, they're given sovereignly to, to, by God to, to couples. And they're given sovereignly by God to, to the church. I hope that as, as we look at our, our church and see the, the incredible blessing of, of children in our church, none of us say, well, uh, thank goodness we're such a good church and did all these great things to get these kids. No, we have children in our church because God has graciously given them to us. Now, what's the application from this truth that children are given by God? Well, first of all, one application as we think about the sanctity of life is that we don't have anxiety concerning the lack of presence of, of children in our lives. Sometimes as, we, as, as couples struggles with infertility or miscarriages or or even as someone goes through the adoption process and thinks about all the, the terrible things that are, that are happening and they're not able to bring these children home, we say, you know what? God is the sovereign giver of life. As we sang this morning, you're the giver of life. And we recognize that our anxiety is not a healthy response to the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And like Hannah, we turn to worship of God. As a church, as a church, what does it mean that the children are given by God? It means that we as a church must be a place that, that welcomes the children that have been given us by God. If you look in your bulletin this morning, you're going to see in, in one of the sections that there is a tremendous need for people, men and women, to step up and, and care for the children that God has given us. I believe that God has given us a lot of children because we want to be faithful in caring for them. We need to do that. We need to do that. So one thing we learn from 1 Samuel chapter 1 is, as we think about the issue of the sanctity of life, on Sanctity of Life Sunday, is that children are given by God. The second thing that we learn here is that children are a blessing. Children are a blessing. And you and I live in a culture that denies that in blatant ways and in very subtle ways. Let me begin, begin by talking by the most obvious example of a culture that does not believe that children are a blessing. I'm speaking, of course, of the issue of abortion. Now, I hope that you and I would agree that there are some, some areas in which those who, who call themselves uh, pro-choice, there are some issues that many of them focus on that are, that are good issues to focus on. Many of those who are pro-choice uh, focus upon the, the condition of mothers who find themselves in terrible situations, and, and I hope that we would, our hearts would ache as we consider women who find themselves in desperate circumstances, and we as a church would be unwavering our commitment to women who find themselves in difficult circumstances. I hope we would also recognize that the curse in Genesis chapter 3 is very much alive in our culture today and, and has been in our culture since the beginning of, of human history. In Genesis chapter 3, you see that one of the effects of the curse is that both men and women fail to, to honor God in their relationships with one another. And what we see about the man in that relationship is, is men are often uh, domineering and, and, and even abusive in relationships. And, and there are women who have been the victim of very abusive relationships and abusive power structures. And, and we, as the church, need to boldly speak out against that. At the same time, we adamantly and steadfastly refuse to accept the premise that children are a curse. I was reading an article, and I, I tried to read the pro-choice position, the so-called pro-choice position, in order to be fair and to rightly understand their arguments. This is what one uh, woman wrote, and she's a former financial reporter. Her name's uh, Ann Crittenden, and she says this. She said, just as free enterprise is a requirement for economic growth and development, <clears throat> freedom of choice is a prerequisite of economic development. Just as there is no debate over who is the best 
in the best position to decide whether a man or woman should start a new business, by the same token, there should be no debate over who is in a best, the best position to decide whether to start the most important business of life, a family. Should the woman make this awesome decision, which will call upon everything she has, her heart, her intelligence, her time, her energy, her very being, not just for three or five years or for 20 years, but for a lifetime? Or should the government decide? Should the parents decide or some self-appointed morals police? The world, and this, she goes on to say this, the world saw the consequences of denying so-called, those are my words, uh, reproductive freedom at the end of the Cold War when they opened the appalling orphanages of Romania. The communist dictatorship had denied Romanian women the right to decide for themselves whether they were equipped to be good mothers. Thousands of women were forced to have children they didn't want or couldn't care for. Many of those children were abandoned to state orphanages and to permanently damaged lives. We now find ourselves in a struggle against those who want the government and courts here in the United States to do to American women and children what a communist dictatorship did to the women and children of Romania. I reject the false dilemma. I reject the idea that one must decide between whether, uh, whether children are going to be abandoned in orphanages or whether women are going to have the, the freedom to pursue joy in life. It's a false dichotomy that's presented here, and I refuse to accept the premise that children are somehow a curse upon women. 1 Samuel chapter 1 is extremely clear. Children are a blessing from God. I've mentioned this article last year, I believe, but I want to read it again. It's an article entitled, Yes, Abortion is Killing, and this is written by Antonia Senior, and she's a pro-choice person. And she says this, what seems increasingly clear to me is that in the absence of an objective definition, a fetus is a life by any subjective measure. My daughter, she says, was formed at conception and all the barely understood alchemy that turned the happy accident into my darling personality-packed toddler took place at that moment. She is unmistakably herself, her own person, forged in my womb, not by my mothering. Any other conclusion is a convenient lie that we on the pro-choice side of the debate tell ourselves to make us feel better about the action of taking a life. That little seahorse shape <clears throat> floating in a willing womb is a growing miracle of life. In a resentful womb, it is not a life but a fetus and thus killable. She says this, though. Chilling statement. As ever, when an issue we thought was black and white becomes more nuanced, the answer lies in choosing the lesser evil. The nearly 200,000 aborted babies, she uses the word babies, the nearly 200,000 aborted babies in the UK each year are the lesser evil, no matter how you define life or death for the matter. If you're willing to die for a cause, you must be prepared to kill for it too. That is a chilling conclusion, the logical conclusion of the pro-choice position. It's the same demonic reasoning that fueled the genocides of the 20th century and continues in the 21st. There are subtle ways that our culture denies that children are a blessing as well. There are 130,000 children, 130,000 children in the foster care system right now in America. And we deny children are a blessing when, when we say those, those children's lives are somehow not as valuable as other children's lives, or, or those children represent a, a financial inconvenience to me, and, and so I'm not going to take on the burden of caring for those children because, because they're not a blessing. Those children would somehow be a curse to me. You and I buy in the demonic lie that children are not a blessing when we turn our eyes on the plight of the orphan the child in foster care, the child with special needs. Children are a blessing. Children are a blessing given by God. Hannah understands that here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and you and I, you and I must understand that as well. Children are a blessing from God. In fact, there's one other example in our culture that I, I thought I'd share. 
with you. This is an article that was written by someone who made the decision not to have children. And uh, they say this. They say, you know, this is an article they wrote. She talks about her decision not to have children. She says, you know, it costs over a million dollars to raise a child over their entire lifetime. And the fabulous lifestyle that I've chosen to live, children are just not part of my perfect equation. This estimate in excess of $1 million is only the cost of actual child, including diapers, formula, clothing, extracurricular activities in college. I'm not sure about you, but I don't have a million dollars just lying around with nothing better to do than pop out a couple children. I, for one, am not willing to be in debt over children. On the top of the basic costs involved in raising a child, we also have to add on the associated costs and the changes of our lifestyle that come with having children. Along with 2.3 children, the perfect family must also have a home in the suburbs, equipped with a pool, a dog, and a stylish SUV. The $1 million estimate cost to raise a child does also not take into account the cost of our own time and effort that's involved in raising a child. What do you see there? Me, 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 me. Children would be a curse upon me because I won't be able to pursue the life that I want to pursue. Now, one more illustration of this, and and I'm going to Listen very carefully to what I'm, I'm saying here because this, this illustration uh, could be mis, misinterpreted very easily. But many couples ask me during the, the premarital counseling time uh, before they get married about birth control. So what about birth control? How does this violate the, the principle or does it violate the principle that the children are a blessing? Now, I don't believe that uh, it, it's morally wrong to employ forms of, of birth control that that don't affect the sanctity of life. In other words, that that don't harm life in any way whatsoever. And so I I, I say that. At the same time, I would acknowledge this, that sometimes, a thing that we don't think about very often, and that's what is our motivation in employing means of birth control? And very often, sometimes, let me say this, sometimes the motivation for employing birth control is that we don't believe that children are a blessing. We somehow believe that the presence of children in our lives would, would be a curse, a, some, somehow not effective for my own goals in life or what I desire to do. And, and now there are times when I believe that God would, would say a person, to a person uh, through, through his word and through the influence of other people that, you know, this is the right size for your family or these are the, the ministries you're called to do and you can't do that and so birth control is okay, or maybe there's some health issues. But I would say this, that since the advent of birth control, our, soci- our society's view of children has changed in a remarkable way. And even we in the church sometimes view children as a curse instead of a blessing. First Samuel chapter 1 is clear. Children are not a curse. Children are a blessing given to us by a loving, sovereign God. Last principle that I want us to think about here, children are the Lord's. Children belong to God. You look at the vow that Hannah makes here, and you say, whoa, how in the world could she have said such a thing? How could she have been willing to give up her child? And and I tell you this, you know what? Every single one of us in here who is a parent, or every single one of us in here who has influence over the lives of children, in some ways must make a similar vow. The sanctity of life does not end when you make the decision to actually have the child. In other words, you can't say, well, I believe in the sanctity of life, and and so I I had a a child, and and, uh, I care for it. I give it some food and stuff every now and then. Uh, No, the sanctity of life means that, that we acknowledge that we have a responsibility before God Almighty to be good stewards of the life that he has entrusted to us. There is nothing, there is nothing that I would not do to protect the physical lives of my children when it comes to making personal sacrifices. There is nothing that I would not do to preserve and protect the well-being of my children in terms of of what it might cost me and my physical life. No sacrifice would be too great for my children. You and I must have a similar commitment to the spiritual well-being of our children. No sacrifice is too great 
to preserve the spiritual well-being of our children. And too many of us, dads, moms, aunts, uncles, have checked out when it comes to the spiritual development and well-being of our kids. Just as I would sacrifice and do whatever things are necessary in order to provide for the physical well-being of my child, just as if there was going to be some day where I wasn't able to provide food for my kid, I would do whatever it took that day to make sure that he or she was receiving physical sustenance, so too must we as believers in the church do all that we can to provide for the spiritual well-being of our children. If you believe in the sanctity of life, that life is God-given, and that we have a responsibility to do with life what God calls us to do, I hope that you're being faithful in discipling children. I hope that you're being faithful in praying for people with children. I hope that you're being faithful to care for the children during this worship hour that have need of, of spiritual men and women who are going to love and care for them and take upon the responsibility for encouraging their parents. Sanctity of life, what we see Hannah doing here in response to God's sovereignty over life is something that each of us as parents must do on a daily basis, saying, God, these kids are not my own, and the dreams and the ambitions that I might have for these children, I I don't want them to be my own ambitions, I want them to be your ambitions. And Hannah, whenever she held Samuel in her arms for the first time, could have said, forget Yahweh, I've got a baby now. She said, no, I have this baby as a means to worshiping God. I want to read to you, uh, kind of as we begin to close, a testimony from a a woman who who had suffered several miscarriages. And I have her, had her permission to, to share this with you. She shared this with, with several women who've struggled with this issue. And, and again, you know, what I said at the beginning is true. It's better to go to a house of mourning sometimes than a house of joy. There are things that we learn in, in people's heartache that, that we could not learn as easily apart from heartache. And it's very, very good testimony. She's used it to, to encourage people on how to uh, talk to people who've had miscarriages and encourage people who have. And, and uh, she's talking here in her story about this baby that she was carrying, and um, she had named it, this little girl that she was carrying, she named her, her Kelly. And she says this, she, she says, I knew that something was wrong with Kelly. The next day, Asano showed no heartbeat. Our baby girl had died. I was scheduled for an induction the next morning. Not only did I not have a baby to bring home, but I had to go through labor for a dead baby. I was devastated. I was devastated. I opened my Bible for some comforting words, knowing the Lord was with me in this. And I opened to Jeremiah and thought, the weeping prophet? Not very comforting. But I read anyway. She read Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Verse 4 says, Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, this is verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. It reaffirmed how the Lord had known Kelly and knit her together in my womb. The Lord was with us in this. What did I learn? I learned that the Lord forms each one of us and, and knows our days before there are any. He is faithful and never leaves us alone, Psalm 139. He is strong and gives us the strength to get through what is otherwise impossible. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God sees the big picture while we see what is just in front of our noses. He loves us more than we can imagine. In 1 Corinthians, she says, 1, 3 through 4 tells us that the Lord comforts us in our grief and is preparing to comfort us or preparing us to comfort others in their grief. And then she takes what she and others have learned in their experiences and, and gives people suggestions for how to, to talk to people who've had miscarriages. And she says, don't say things like, at least you have other children. True, she says, but not very helpful. And it says, this one was not important. You would have been so busy. True, but who cares? Something must have been wrong with the baby, and this was God's way of taking care of it may be true, but still hurts. And many of us would rather have a baby with something wrong with it than not have that baby.
in grief and heartache. In the grief and the heartache of a mother, we learn something about the preciousness of human life. Something that instructs us about how we should respond to life. I hope that Hannah's heartache and her struggle and how she turns to the Lord in that struggle and how she continues to trust the Lord even after the child is born, I, I hope that shapes our church's culture of life. I hope that we are a church that says to a world that is lost and suffering, we will be a place where children are welcomed. We will be a church where children are cared for and loved and provided for. Just this past week, someone came to my home, a woman who works in the foster care, uh, works the foster care uh, program, and Whitney and I are uh, prayerfully considering how God might have us to be involved in, in foster care ministry, and so we're going to begin taking foster care classes, and she was describing the program to us, and she said, now, uh, it's really important for you to be involved in, in, in or to have you know, some support systems, and she says, now, there's this church that does a really great job of, of caring for people that are going through, through foster care ministry. It's called Bethany, and um, I said, tell me more. That sounds like a really good church. No, and I share that with you just because I want to tell you how blessed, how blessed I was to hear someone say that. Because what it means is that, that we have a church that not for the name of Bethany is, is doing this, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. And as our community hears about the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed, they also see the gospel of Jesus Christ being lived out. You and I have been adopted by God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And now, you and I have the opportunity to live out our faith in Jesus Christ alone as we care for those who are suffering because of what we believe regarding life. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus, and we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship him. We pray that you would help us to be faithful in the things you've called us to do. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.